G'day, Annie McLaughlin here for this week's edition of Stick Together, focusing on union news, workers' stories and social justice issues. Stick Together is produced at 3CR Radio in Melbourne with the financial support of the Community Radio Foundation. We come to you on the Community Radio Network through your local community radio station. Last Thursday, Unions ACT called a rally in support of the Secure Local Jobs Package being put forward by the ACT Labor Government. What's it all about? Alex White, Secretary of Unions ACT, says Canberra has a big problem with dodgy contractors winning ACT government jobs, then ripping off workers, committing wage theft or disregarding workplace safety laws. We talked to Alex to find out more about why workers needed to go to the streets around the new laws. In our second report, we go to the State of the Union exhibition at the Ian Potter Gallery at Melbourne University. It looks at union history and the importance of art in bringing the message of solidarity out. Backed by the National Tertiary Education Union, the NTEU, we hear from the State of the Union curator, Jacqueline Doherty, as she goes through the exhibition during Blue Stocking Week, celebrating working women. But first, some workers' news. A big win for bus drivers in Melbourne, negotiated by the union, the Transport Workers Union, the TWU. It was announced on August 15th, after a series of rolling strikes at bus companies CDC and Transdev that, following discussions with government and operators led by Branch Secretary John Berger and bus organisers Mike McNeith, Bob Lean and Imran Malik, that they are pleased to report new offers have been put up on the table that meet members' expectations and do not include any trade-offs. The offers include a 4% per annum increase and a lump sum payment on top of mandatory employer superannuation payments. Victorian TWU Secretary John Berger said members were low-balled by the operators in the original offers made to the drivers and the drivers decided they would fight for a decent increase, he said. These hard-working members of the community have mouths to feed and bills to pay and could not see any future benefit in what was originally on the table, he said. The win today is the result of a long campaign where our members stayed strong and united and proves to all Australian workers what can be achieved when workers stick together. The CDC and Transdev negotiating committees have suspended planned protected industrial action and have commenced full yard meetings to communicate all the details on this historic win. The proposals will then go to a formal vote. The union thanked the resilience of the staunch members who demonstrated that by sticking together, we win. Still at the Transport Workers Union, the ABC 7.30 report exposing Jetstar's use of cabin crew from Thailand working on internal flights for base rates of just $100 per week has the TWU demanding that the federal government immediately address the safety breaches and exploitation occurring as a result of overseas cabin crew working on Australian domestic flights. Annual leave is banned for a first year of work, with some shifts 
lasting up to 20 hours and crews struggling to feed themselves while staying overnight for work in Australia. Safety is being compromised as the overseas crew are not trained to carry out basic functions such as boarding passengers for a flight. The federal government is allowing companies to use our immigration and workplace laws to exploit untrained overseas crews. This issue was flagged years ago, but instead of addressing it, the government has allowed it to continue and is ignoring the potential catastrophic consequences if something were to go wrong during a flight, said TWU National Secretary Michael Kane. In 2014, the federal court said the Fair Work Act, as it stood, did not cover overseas cabin crew in a case taken by the Fair Work Ombudsman. In 2015, the federal government rules Australian Airlines could employ overseas cabin crew on two internal flights in Australia. Overseas crew have been told by Jetstar to politely decline tasks that they are untrained to perform on domestic flights. As United Voice is gearing up its Big Steps campaign for equal pay for early childhood workers, with a rally being called in Sydney at St Martin's Place for Wednesday, September the 5th at 3.30, the discovery that the federal government has a plan to withdraw funding for four-year-old kinder is a new shock. The $440 million cut outlined in budget documents overturns a long-standing arrangement between the Commonwealth and the states and territories to jointly fund one year of preschool. The Federal Liberals also used the May budget to announce they were washing their hands of quality and safety standards in early learning centres. This funding, worth $20 million nationwide, ran out in July, forcing states and territories to go it alone or else risk letting childcare centres and kinders go unchecked. You're listening to Stick Together, workers' stories and union news. Broadcast around the country every week on the Community Radio Network. You're listening to Stick Together, workers' stories, union news and social justice issues. Canberra has a big problem with dodgy contractors winning ACT government jobs, says Alex White, Secretary of Unions ACT. Unionists rallied on Thursday the 16th of August at 12pm to let the ACT Assembly and the community know that workers need the Secure Local Jobs Code being proposed by the ACT Labor government. We spoke to Alex a day later to find out what the laws are about. Sure, so very quickly, the Secure Local Jobs Package is a set of laws that will ensure that the ACT government only procures goods and services from contractors that have the highest safety and ethical labour standards. So previously and uh, currently, there's no way for the ACT government to ensure that the companies that provide services to it obey the Fair Work Act and obey the WHS laws when it comes to things like wage theft, superannuation, or ensuring that there's workplace safety. And these new laws will mean that uh, now they're able to enforce those uh, safety laws better and ensure that if a contractor is found to be committing wage theft or some other breach of the law, then uh, they're able to be held accountable. Really? So how are they going to do that? How, how can they do that? 
Well, basically, uh, through a number of ways. Firstly, they're changing the law to require as a condition uh, of uh, tendering for government work for the privilege of putting in an application and getting lucrative government contracts. Uh, it'll be a condition that you have to obey the law and then it'll be written into the various contracts so it'll be able to be enforced through uh, the contract as well as just through the law. So the number of different ways that it uh, will be achieved, but it's a really groundbreaking set of laws that will ensure that for the first time a jurisdiction in Australia is ensuring that public funds that are going to private companies to provide services must be performed by reputable, decent companies. Yeah, now we've seen a lot of uh, uh, what would be called uh, bending of the rules or breaking of the rules in the uh, construction uh Firms and stuff like that, but uh, and the gov- federal government's gone out of its way to say that they're not going to have uh, particular companies working for them if they do this or that. But they don't actually uh, enforce uh, a whole range of the laws about wage theft and uh, other commitments. Uh, n- now, is this uh, this is where the unions come in, really, don't they? Where they actually point out that certain laws uh, aren't being followed. Well, that's right, and uh, one of the uh, requirements in this uh, package will be to ensure that uh, workers get a right to representation so that uh, unions are able to be informed and are able to uphold uh, the various laws, whether it's the Fair Work Act or uh, Work Safety laws. I would also say it's not just in construction, although construction uh, is particularly bad when it comes to safety in the ACT, uh, but it's also things like uh, cleaning, school cleaning, cleaning of government Offices, uh, security for government uh, facilities, human services, so all of the um, uh, community services and social services that the government uh, provides for uh, things like housing and so on. So almost there's like billions of dollars of ACT government procurement that we're talking about. Uh, so it's very uh, wide-ranging, things like waste services, uh, municipal services, lawn mowing, the whole lot. So very broad, and what we know is that every single industry in Canberra is has businesses that are addicted to wage theft and they undercut decent, reputable companies because they break the law and they know they can get away with it at the moment. And this new set of laws will level the playing field and will mean that the dodgy businesses, the dodgy contractors can't get awarded contracts and by undercutting uh, good, reputable companies. Now, the Labor government in the ACT are putting this forward, but there's a bit of a pushback, isn't there? And that's why there was a demonstration on the streets in support of it. Well, that's right. We know that um, the Canberra Liberals and the federal government in particular are very opposed to any laws or any changes that would improve workers' rights. And we also know that there's a couple of business lobbies in Canberra, particularly uh, extreme right-wing business lobbies like the Master Builders Association uh, that oppose these laws. Any company that does the right thing, any company that treats workers with respect and pays them properly, that doesn't put them at risk of injury, will have no problem with these laws. It will only affect those companies that think that it's okay to steal wages and to put their workers at risk. So So that's why we were rallying yesterday, was to uh, put the Liberal Party, Canberra Liberals and the Federal Liberal Party, and the business lobbyists who are supporting dodgy contractors, putting them on notice to say that workers in the community support these new laws. And uh, uh, when when are they coming up for... uh uh, passing these laws? 
Uh, so we'd expect them to be debated in September and then to commence uh, very early January. Are these the first of these sort in Australia? Uh, well, no, the very the first uh, government to introduce laws of this uh, kind were was the Howard government by introducing the ABCC and the Building Code. The Building <laughs> Code is actually a procurement code. Uh, so what we're doing is those, these um, laws and these powers have survived numerous high court challenges, federal court challenges, so we know that uh, the particular laws that are being used, which aren't industrial laws, they're procurement laws, uh, can be used in this way. Federal government uses it to uh, attack unions and to undermine workers and worker safety. And this is an example of a Labor government that has listened to unions and is using the laws to protect workers. Thanks very much, Alex. Okay, no worries. Stick together. Stick together. Stick together. Stick together. Stick together. Stick together. You're listening to Stick Together on Community Radio. You're listening to Stick Together, the only national program devoted to workers' stories, union news and social justice issues on your community radio network. The State of the Union exhibition at the E.M. Potter Gallery at Melbourne University, shows an array of workers' history that reminds us of past struggles and inspires workers to new actions. History is so easy to be lost, but it is clear that a lot of what is in the exhibition forms the shape of contemporary Australia. Here is Jacqueline Doherty, the curator, taking a group of people through the exhibition during Blue Stocking Week in honour of working women. We only have time to listen to the first room. You have until October the 28th to catch the exhibition and the price is free. Two and a half years ago when I first started working here, I learnt that the University of Melbourne Archives held a lot of material that related to unions. I also learnt for the first time about the Stonemasons March starting here in 1856 And these things started playing on my mind. It was also the aftermath of the BIP process, which I had not known about till I started here. And it felt to me like a lot of people were still in trauma. And I found that interesting because I was so excited to be working at the University of Melbourne to see ways that perhaps its behaviour had impacted on workers and to think about my new employer as... um, impacting on the lives of the people who who worked for it. So that was the starting of thinking about a show within this context about unions. I had also seen a work recently by a South Korean artist, which is upstairs, called, um, the artist is called Im Hung Soon, the work is called Factory Complex, and it's about the conditions of female factory workers in South Korea and Cambodia. So all of these things started to coalesce and I began to think about an exhibition that would explore the relationship between artists and trade unions and the way that artists have looked at working culture and industrial action and the fight for workers' rights. It initially was going to be a contemporary art show and there are a lot of contemporary artworks that look at trade unions as a subject matter. But as I began to do more research, I found out that there were two periods in Australian art history when it wasn't just about artists looking at trade unions as a topic. There were periods when artists actually embedded themselves within the trade union world and there were genuine reciprocal collaborations and partnerships. (coughs) That was unexpected to me. I found it fascinating and I wanted to tease out that in the show. So it's a combination of contemporary works, recent artworks and works from two periods, the mid-1900s, the 
of 1930s, 40s and 50s, that post-depression era, when social realist artists were really making their political convictions the subject matter of their art, were expressing their concern for the well-being of the working classes, of workers and their families, their difficulties in finding work, in putting food on the table, in making ends meet. They made these everyday concerns the subject of their art. And they were really in opposition to the, the artwork that was considered cutting edge and that um, was in museums at the time. They were focusing on modernist abstraction. So they were, they were cutting against the they were sort of against the, the trend at the time and it was because they felt that art had the capacity to make change. So there's a number of artworks from that period. There are also a number of artworks from the 70s and the 80s, which is a really interesting time in Australia. It was the start of government funding for the arts and there was a particular funding stream called the Art and Working Life Program. It was a collaboration between the Australia Council and also the ACTU. And its sole purpose was to fund artists to make work about working life in collaboration with trade unions. A lot of artists at that time were given salaries to work within trades hall or within particular workplaces, within trade unions to make work in collaboration with workers. Um, and so this resulted in a whole stream of practice that was quite new to Australia. So there's a number of works throughout the show from that period. So we might start by talking about some of the artworks in this room. I tried to divide, it's difficult when there's such disparate material to figure out a way for it all to sit harmoniously within the space and there is such a mix of artworks, of archival material related to trade unions, of advertising material, market material and some things that are outright propaganda, sort of agitprop. So how do you get these very disparate types of material to sit together in the space? And I decided to make loose thematic groupings in each room. So in this room, there are a lot of works that draw upon that tradition of the trade union banner and also murals, those forms of public art that um, unions were so important in promoting from the 1800s onwards. We were lucky enough to get a loan of this beautiful banner from 1915. It still belongs to the CFMEU, but it's being kept in the collection of Museum Victoria. It's incredibly fragile. We sadly weren't allowed to hang it because it just can't bear its own weight anymore, the canvas tears. So the side that I chose is quite significant. As with all banners, with many banners, the front side has kind of allegorical imagery and we reproduced an image of it on that label so that people would know what they were missing. Um, but this side shows the actual tools of the trade and people at work undertaking the different tasks that the OPDU represented. So decorative gilding, plastering, painting of walls, there's someone doing fake marble. Um, it was really interesting to me because these men are painting but they're considered tradesmen or craftsmen, not artists, and that divide between the art world and the industrial world, I found quite interesting. That push and pull between those two worlds plays out across this gallery. So facing that banner is this banner from 1988, also OPDU, 
but the difference here is that this one was painted by a sign painter, a professional sign painter, and this one was painted by a visual artist. In the 1980s, there was a real revival of the banner painting tradition throughout Australia, and a lot of these artists were funded by that program I mentioned a minute ago, the Art and Working Life program, to make these banners on commission from trade unions. So this is by Megan Evans, a Melbourne artist, and she was actually a member of the OPDU in the 80s. Um, Megan was primarily working as a mural painter. She did the Northcote Koori mural. A number of you would probably be familiar with that. It's since been moved from its original site and it's, on, it's in Thornbury now. Um, so she was commissioned to do that mural on a particular site that was under a BLF ban. So she wasn't allowed to build the wall that the mural was meant to be on. So she met up with Albert Littler, who's an amazing fixer, who would soon to become the secretary of the OPDU. And he got the band dropped for her so that she could do her mural. And this began a friendship that has lasted until today. He was talking to Megan about what it meant to be an artist, the conditions she worked under, and he suggested that artists should join the OPDU and he established the art workers section of the OPDU at that time. So a number of artists in Melbourne joined. Um, Megan ended up being the vice president of the OPDU before it merged with the CFMEU. So it's just a really nice combination of, of the union world and the art world encapsulated in this particular banner. But Alongside these banners that were made for trade unions to be carried through the streets, there are works like this, which are artworks. This was made for a gallery context, but it is quoting that form of visual communication. So there are a number of artists in the show who are drawing upon the, the visual forms of protest that are familiar from the trade union movement, whether it is banners or murals or posters or pamphlets or brochures, these forms of visual communication that in the past have been more aligned with the idea of advertising or promotion or um, political protest have been brought into the language of the visual artist. So this is a work by Raquel O'Mella, she's a Sydney artist, and it was commissioned last year by Carriage, um, Carriage Works on the centenary of the 1917 Great Strike. She wanted to do a work that acknowledged the individuals who were involved in that strike. So each banner has the names, has the name of one of the workers who went on strike. And the term Lily White, you probably all know better than me, I've just found out, was used to refer to people who stayed true to the struggle through to the end of the strike, that didn't give in, that didn't go back to work, that um, stayed on strike right to the end. But the interesting thing is that it was really hard for Raquel to find these names because at the time people didn't want, they, they knew there could be reprisals, they didn't want their name out there as a striker. So it was hard to find this information. The names she could find were of people who had ended up having to go to court for various reasons. One of these men hit um, someone who was crossing the picket lines. And so he went to court, so his name was on the record, so it meant that Raquel had access to that information and could include him. And I like that um, idea that the individual has been acknowledged when so often unions are about collective action, about pulling together a number of people, a united voice, in order to protect the individual's rights. So this work encapsulates that really beautifully. If you come up close, you'll notice that these banners are actually made out of clothes, secondhand clothes. They're workers' clothes, both 
um, the overalls weren't worn by blue collar workers and suits worn by white collar workers. So we won't talk about every single work and then we get through the show, but I'll just brief mention of this one. It's a new commission for the show by Tully Moore. He grew up in Orange. There's a factory there, there was until 2016. It was called the Electric Lux Factory and it shut down and moved offshore in 2016. He wanted to do a work about how important that workplace was to the town. That in the post-war period, it really shifted the whole demographic of Orange. It was before then an agrarian, rural, farming community. And um, this factory brought a whole wave of immigration and European immigrants to Orange and really changed the nature of the town and it became the heartbeat of the town. Pretty well everyone there either knows someone who worked in this factory or worked there themselves. So it, it's, a, it's a work drawing on the tra traditions of mural painting and banners but about how workplaces can often mean so much more than just a source of income to individuals and to whole communities. So we'll move into the room over there. That's it for today's Stick Together. Just to remind you that uh, if you want to get along to the State of the Union exhibition, it's at the Ian e. Potter Gallery at Melbourne University. Entry is free and it's running until October the 28th. Also, if you're in Sydney, don't forget the Big Steps Rally on the 5th of September in Martin's Place at 3.30. It starts at 3.30pm. Thanks to you for listening to Stick Together today. Thanks for Alex White and Jacqueline Doherty for being part of the program. Stick Together is produced at 3CR Studios in Melbourne. We broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network and the podcast is available at 3cr.org.au and you can contact the producers of the show at sticktogether3cr at gmail.com or by calling 03 94198377. We'd love to hear from you. Remember, wherever you are, whatever you do, there's a union for you. My name's Annie McLaughlin. Until next time, stick together. <laughs>